And I'd like to ask you to turn down your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. I have to confess, this has been one of my favorite chapters in the Bible for many years now. And um, it's sort of a strange way of thinking. You know, they, they say misery likes company. But I've got a little twist on that. Because we're going to see a lot of misery in this chapter. All right? And, and I don't know about you, but maybe you've experienced misery, maybe not. If you haven't, you haven't lived long enough, because you will. But what I've found is not only misery likes company, because there's, there's part of this I relate in this passage. Because things just don't always go the way you want. But what this passage reveals is that misery needs redemption. And there's a beautiful picture of redemption. And that's what I'm hoping we'll see as we go through this chapter in Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children, obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar. And she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered from multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell, dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. 
Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. One of the things I enjoy doing is reading biographies. I enjoy history, and reading biographies uh, kind of just gives history on a personal level. And of course, they always, you always write biographies of important people, right? Famous people, people that sometimes we would call our heroes. Um, sometimes I've uh, gotten into different grooves, and I've read uh, a, a, a couple of years back on the, the uh, read uh, Eric Metaxas' book on Martin Luther when we were celebrating 500 years of Reformation. Metaxas also did Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So somehow, times I'll get on uh, saints in, in history. Other times it may be a periods of American history. Uh, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson. The thing is sometimes, though, it's, it's fascinating, especially if you've got a good author there writing on this biography, and, you're, and you have certain impressions that you've been given that you were raised up with or something, and, and you may have idolized that person a little bit, rightfully or wrongfully. Most of the time we find out a lot of our heroes sometimes aren't. And that they're people with clay feet just like you and me. And that's a little bit of what we see here in this passage. It, we, we come into it here, but you have to have a little bit of a sense. We know it's dealing with three characters primarily, Sarai, Abram, and Hagar. But, but you've got to realize Abram particularly is a figure that's larger than life. I mean, he's Abram, the father of the Jews, the father of faith, Right? He's the recipient in, in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, of God's tremendous and great promises. Where God said, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. That's a magnificent promise. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I mean, we're talking about an important character right here in Abram. And not only was he the recipient of God's promises, then God follows it up in the previous chapter we didn't read, but in chapter 15, where then there's a, this elaborate ceremony in which uh, God tells Abram to, to gather these animals and cut them in half except for the birds, and, and they put them in there. And what does it say in verses 17? It says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Beholding a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Abram was not only the recipient of God's really remarkable promises, but God backed up these promises by making a covenant with him, demonstrating in a ritual that says, if I don't fulfill this so let it be to me as happened to these animals that have been cut apart and put on the side. He ratified his promise through this covenant. Abram was going to be a man of a great nation. 
and a great people, respected, blessed. And so when we come to the first verse of Genesis 16, it's really quite ominous. You know, if you were watching a very old movie and it had kind of was trying to build suspense and it had gotten quiet and then the organ comes in, now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne no children. How are we supposed to receive the promises? How are we supposed to become a great nation? How, how are these things supposed to happen when the wife is barren? It's quite a dilemma. And as we'll see in a little bit, it, a lot of consternation, and, and you can kind of read between the lines here. In, even verse 2, when, when Sarah's, you know she's thought about this a lot. And it's not like she wants to, but it's almost like she feels compelled to go to Abram and it's almost a confession. The, the, the Lord's kind of, kind of implied, the Lord's spoken against me. The Lord's abandoned me. He's prevented me from bearing children. Abram, we've got to come up with plan B. Now the plan really was something that would have been socially and culturally acceptable. I mean, you can go back into the ancient writings, and it was pretty clear, especially in times, we've even seen this, unfortunately, in our own history with slavery, to where children who were born into slavery, they were possessions of the people who owned them, not of the family that bore them. And so this was a little bit different, but uh, it was a social practice that, if, if the, the wife could not bear, then, then socially, and there were laws written about this culturally where they could come in and um, do exactly what Sarah was saying, and that child would be credited to Abram. And probably because she had been barren so long, the plan was socially and culturally not only acceptable, but probably also expected. Some might have even been saying, Sarah, what took you this long? Couldn't you have seen that there was a better way to do this? And understand that this was kind of, this was almost a business transaction culturally. Not some sort of central tryst that she was inviting Abram to take part in. It was all very clear. And it, it, uh, of, of what was happening and what the outcome was supposed to be. The problem was it was not God's plan. It was the plan of Sarah, of which Abram, in, in fact, if you, you know, looked up if they had a definition for moral courage in uh, Scripture, I think there would be a picture of Abram going, because this is just a, another time, where we see him just in his passivity, uh, being irresponsible. Uh, there's really not much other way to put it than that. 
But I think not only are we, are we seeing that this plan might have been a social and cultural type of thing that could have happened, but I think really it's reflecting more a lot of Sarah's fears. It's reflecting her fears. Am I rejected? Am I the problem? What did I do wrong? And not only is it reflecting her fears, it's reflecting her pain. This culture, there's a lot of shame in not being able to bear women. Guilt. God, God, is, the Lord has made these promises to my husband and I'm not able to fulfill it. Shame. Guilt. And you know, perhaps the most devastating thing for Sarah, she's coming to terms perhaps with the fact that I'm never going to have a child to hold a nurse of my own. So I, I, I don't want to diminish her fear and pain. But I also want us to think a little bit that accepting sometimes social and cultural norms, combining them with our feelings of rejection and pain, can sometimes lead to rationalizing and justifying our thoughts and actions. And Again, perhaps I'm the only one who at times has, has wandered into rationalizing something that I thought I needed to do or wanted to do and justifying it. But we have here a huge mess in this, these first six verses. Sarah was a bundle of pain, hurt, bitterness, anger, resentment. Abram was a bundle of passivity and irresponsibility, and Hagar had to be a bundle of confusion. I mean, here is this servant girl. What, what, what say did he, she have in any of this? All right? She's a slave one day. She becomes the pregnant wife of her master the next. She went from having no value to being very valuable. And because of it now being beaten and fleeing for her life. So we see in the backdrop of these great promises, dysfunction being laid upon dysfunction being laid upon dysfunction. And just a horrible mess. I mean, you've got the father of faith being irresponsible, his wife beating a servant girl, servant girl running away. Oh, now that's a great picture of your typical normal Christian family, right? Nothing happens to Christian families. Everything just glides along. We just live in this nice little bubble, don't we? This is really bad. And then verse 7 happens. Then the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water. I'm going to take just a, just a moment to kind of pause on this whole idea of the angel of the Lord. Okay? This is the first time we see this in Scripture. And it's not real common, but we do see it recurring throughout the Old Testament. We see it 
the angel of the Lord appearing to Abram in Genesis 22, to Moses in Exodus 3, uh, to Balaam in Numbers 22, to Israel collectively in Judges 2, uh, to Gideon in Judges 6, to Samson's uh, parents in Judges 13, uh, to David in Second Samuel 24, and then Elijah in 1 Kings 19. So when we see it happening, it's a pretty big deal. And you'll notice a lot of those names that I read through there, you know, David, Moses, Gideon, again, a lot of these heroes of the faith. The first time the angel of the Lord appears, who does he appear to? A servant girl. A pregnant servant girl runaway who, who is so confused she really doesn't know what to do in life or where to go, and she's just kind of sitting down by, by a stream crying. I think that tells us a little bit about this angel of the Lord. And in most of these, when we see these, especially when it's considered God himself being physically present, we understand it as a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Christ. And that's what makes it so significant. And he comes and he seeks her out and finds her. Isn't that a beautiful picture even just right there? And then he does what God is very often prone to do in scriptures. It's what my wife calls God's gentle questions. When you're reading through scripture, just note the number of times in God's interactions, even in, in, in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Hey, Adam, where are you? As if God doesn't know. I mean, he is the one who found her, by the way, by the stream. And we see gentle questions throughout, even to the woman caught in adultery. Woman, where are your accusers? Our Lord is full of compassion. But he comes, and, and these are great questions. Where are you coming from? Where are you coming from? Wow, what a loaded question. They could be both taken literally, physically. Oh, I came from, you know, two miles down the road north, you know, one half mile south. Or I've, I've just come from a horrible situation in which my mistress was beating me. Where are you coming from? Where are you coming from in life? And then the next question, so where are you going? You got a plan? How's this working for you? And then after he asks these gentle questions, he then goes on to give direction. And, and he didn't really ask her, but he says, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her and went on with the promise. Implied in these was this voice of direction and guidance, but also I believe strongly implied of care and protection. But here's what it reveals. 
It reveals, as the name Ishmael says, God sees. It reveals that God hears us. And it reveals that God intervenes in the lives of his people. I don't know why I'm so drawn to this chapter. Always have been for years, though. But I think, kind of in conclusion, because it is really kind of just a, a picture of my life. I don't know if you can see it as a picture of yours. Of where any time Kelly just is trying to go out and, 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 and just figure things out on his own, doesn't always have the best results. And I can ask myself, and I hope you ask yourself, where, where am I coming from? And where am I going to? There's so many passages that I could go to, but I want to go to one passage in the New Testament and read to you right now. In the, the, gospel, uh, in the, the epistle of Colossians. In the first chapter, and this is uh, the Apostle Paul speaking to the Colossians, and so from the day we heard, and just prior said, of your love for Christ, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. For he, and here's the part, for he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Where are you coming from? The domain of darkness. That's where Hagar was before God before Christ intervened in her life. There's no purpose. There's no direction. There's not making much sense out of it. There's just trying to do things in the flesh. But he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So now let's tie it a little bit with Abram and his promises. God was faithful to Abram, wasn't he? Because many of us, we know the story, we go on and we, we read how then Sarah did have a child. And God was true to his covenant. And there's things that we learn that God does understand and hear our doubts and fears. And that we are called to trust him. To trust that God does have a plan and he's working it out and that he knows what he's doing. Even if it doesn't make sense to us. And that we need to be patient as God works out his plan. This passage I read in Colossians in a very brief few verses puts before us this same hope. Because that covenant has continued and broadened to what was given to Abram. And we know, and through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been transferred 
into a new covenant, into the kingdom of his beloved son, we have some really tremendous and wonderful promises that the Lord has made. How easy it is for us to sometimes be faced with challenges and difficulties that we experience that make us maybe want to question our faith and we want to try to invent another plan. And he says, trust me. I can see things you don't see. I hear you when you cry to me. And I will intervene in the lives of my children. Doesn't mean he'll always change our circumstances immediately. We sometimes have to live with the messes that we've created. Abram had to live with some of the messes he created. Didn't completely eliminate. It didn't make life a bowl of cherries for him. And we're not promised that it's going to be that for either, for us as well. But we have some tremendous promises. The forgiveness of sins. Life eternal. To be with Christ. To be considered his brothers and sisters. That he is there interceding for us. The right hand of God. We simply need to be patient. Sometimes in understanding his ways are not our ways and his thoughts not ours. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so his ways are above ours. He is a God who can be trusted in our doubts and in our fears. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you worked and came in the midst of a terrible situation and brought grace and brought redemption. Lord, we pray that you would help us in our times of trial, in our times of confusion, that we would indeed, even as we sang earlier with the psalmist, that we would cry out to you in our distress and that we would see one who hears us, one who intervenes, and one who loves us with an everlasting love. We pray that you would just keep us in your word, trusting you. In Jesus' name, amen.